Well, uh, we are finishing our Nehemiah series this morning, and uh, we're going to wrap it up with chapter 13. So you can go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 13 as we look at what it means to build again. The encouragement, the title of this morning's message is Let's Build Again. Let's build again. And uh, just this past year, uh, we spent time as pastors and staff wrestling with this most important and fundamental question. If our call, if our mission is to make disciples, that's what Jesus did when he came. He called people to follow him and he taught people how to follow him. And then he said, hey, you're going to do what I've done for you. You're going to make disciples and help people follow me. And so if our mission is to make disciples, we should ask the question, well, what does a disciple look like? What should we as followers of Jesus look like in our day-to-day lives. And so we, as a team, identified what we're calling the seven pursuits of a disciple. The seven pursuits of a disciple. The seven pursuits, listen, they are relevant to the Christian life from your very first spiritual breath in Christ when you come to faith in Jesus all the way to your dying breath before you go to meet Jesus, okay? So no matter if you're a new believer or if you've been a believer for a really long time, these seven pursuits are for you. And it's our hope that eventually that as a church family, everyone will make your way through this curriculum that we've almost finished up and we're employing and using in our discipleship groups. But I want to share the first two pursuits of a disciple because we see these reflected in the text of Scripture in Nehemiah 13. And listen, if you don't remember the other three through seven pursuits, if you get these two two pursuits, I am confident that you are going to see pursuits three through seven happen on the regular and everything else that God wants us to be about in our lives as well. And so what are the first two pursuits of a disciple that we've identified as a church family? The first one is this. Seek God. Seek God. Seek God daily with passion. And as we talked about last night, I love the joy being heard in the room today. Enjoy. Seek God daily with passion and with joy. And as we do so, what we're going to find in this love, can you believe, relationship with our Heavenly Father, the one who should and can be our very closest friend in life, is that as we get his heart in the seeking of him, we're going to find that we want to surrender to him. We want to walk in his ways. We want our hearts to reflect his heart. That's why pursuit number two is to surrender daily to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That whatever it is that God the Holy Spirit says to do this day or he tells us to do in the scriptures, okay, that we're fully committed and, yes, surrendered to say my life is yours. What you say goes and I am wanting to live my life completely for your name. Seek God daily with passion and joy. Surrender daily to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. The the reason I'm wearing, you know, one of the reasons, there are many reasons this this, this jersey is going to come up on occasional Sundays, all right? Because number one, we know that we got our church clothes on no matter what we're wearing to church. You can dress up. You can wear a suit. You can come in your sneakers or whatever, okay? Because God is more concerned about our heart than our clothes, all right? So just that's one lesson we can see. But another reason is because you, 
Redemption Hill Church gave this to me and our pastors on our 10th anniversary. And as we've been saying in this Build Again series, this is a great opportunity for us as a church, understanding our cultural moment, coming, it seems, kind of out of the pandemic now and into a new season, including great first 10 years as a church family, praise God. But now we're moving into a new 10 years, the next 10 years. And what is it that God has for us? He has a great mission before us. That's not changed, but we sometimes change and we need to renew our commitment again to be about the business of Jesus and living for him. And this is what we see in Nehemiah 13. We see that the people of Israel, though they had renewed their covenant relationship, in other words, they had renewed their devotion to God. They said, God, we want to be about your business. We want to worship you. We want to keep your commands. We want to live life according to your ways. But we see that they, over time, had moved away from those commitments. And so Nehemiah 13 is going to give us a picture of what it looks like to build again by, on the one hand, prioritizing worship. Yes, seek God daily with passion and joy. And then number two, to build again by keeping God's commands. Yes, surrender daily to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And we see this first priority of prioritizing worship in verses 1 through 14. I want to read these words for us. It says this, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God, you could preach a whole sermon right here. Our God turned the blessing into, uh, sorry, let me read that rightly. Our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portion of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant Hanan the son of Zechur, son of Metaniah. 
for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and his service. Once again, we see that we will build again. The call is to let's build again by prioritizing worship. We see this all through verses 1 through 14 of Nehemiah chapter 13. And at the very beginning, at the outset of the chapter, what we find is that the people are returning to the word of God. I hope you've been bringing your book day by day, spending time with God in his word. The people return to the word and clearly they're reading from Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 3 through 5, which prohibits Moabites and Ammonites from coming into the assembly of worship among the people of God. And you say, why is that? I thought God was inclusive. I thought he wanted everyone to know him and to worship him. Well, yes, absolutely, that's what he wants. But clearly these people were not interested in worshiping him. In fact, we know this for two reasons. Number one, when the people of Israel were moving out of slavery in Egypt and on their exodus to the promised land, they ran into who? The Ammonites and the Moabites. And rather than just showing them some simple kindness, they said, hey, we're not even going to give you one loaf of bread or one cup of water. And added to that, not only were they inhospitable, but then they hired a false prophet named Balaam to come to them. You can read about this in Numbers chapters 22 through 25 to pronounce a curse against them as if he had received it from God. And God says, hey, I can read through this false prophecy because I didn't send this dude named Balaam. And he turned God in his grace, turned the curse into a blessing for the people of Israel. But this is why God had commanded, hey, the, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they have no part in the worship of me. So don't allow them to enter into your worship. Their infectious idolatry will taint your worship and tempt you to be pull, pulled away from your devotion to me. But once again, unless you feel like this is too maybe harsh or too comprehensive, you need to keep reading your Bible because you will come to the eighth book of the Bible and it captures the story, the redemption story of a woman named Ruth. And who was Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. And Ruth was a woman who though she was wrapped up in the false worship of her people, heard a different and a better story. And she followed her now mother, future mother-in-law, uh, Naomi, to the, the land of Israel. And she forsakes her false worship and becomes a worshiper of the true and only God. And not only is she welcomed in to the assembly, but God showers his grace and his favor on her. And she becomes one of the great, great, great grandmothers of a little boy from Nazareth whose name is Yeshua, Jesus Christ himself. And so the point here is not exclusion. The point here is a purity of worship. It's about a sincere and pure devotion before God. This is why he says separate from these peoples who do not prioritize the worship of me. And then in verses 4 through 9, we see how deep the problem went because we see a prime 
And, and the greatest probably example of what this looked like, no doubt, in Jerusalem because there was a priest named Eliashib who was related to a man named Tobiah. And he had cleared out the, the vessels of worship in one of the chamber rooms. Okay, so we can kind of think in our day, even for those of you on venue team, raise your hand if you're on the venue team at Redemption Hill. I just want to see you. Don't be shy. All right, raise your hand. I see a few hands. You could raise them a little higher. Come on, it's not like this I can't see very well. But if you just put it up like that, then I can see you. That's really good. Okay, so these were like, you're going to love this, storage closet. It's like a storage closet where, you know, everything was housed for the worship of God. And, and I don't know, I mean, maybe we need to start, you know, uh, consecrating and anointing our venue team. You know, maybe they need to become like priests in the service of Redemption Hill. I don't know. Uh, but, but one thing we don't want you to do, okay, venue, is we don't want you to become like Eliashim. Why is that? It's because he didn't prioritize the worship of God, but rather he made room clearing out the instruments of worship to create a condo for his relative who is none other than Tobiah, who we've seen in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 6. Again and again and again, who is opposing Nehemiah and the people of God as they rebuild the wall and rebuild their relationship with God. Tobiah, yes, the Ammonite, who was up to no good. And one of the reasons this happened, we learned in verses 6 and 7, is that Nehemiah wasn't there. Nehemiah didn't know what was going on. Nehemiah, just like he had promised the king in chapter 2, he said, hey, after I rebuild the wall, I'm going to return to you. And he kept his promise. So he goes back to Artaxerxes. He probably spends, after 12 years in Jerusalem, he probably spends 10 to 15 with the king. And then he asks leave again to go and to check on the people. And when he comes back, this is what he finds. And Nehemiah, because he had a heart to seek God daily with passion and joy, he wasn't okay with what he saw. And so he took action like the true and greater Nehemiah would four centuries later, Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus, when he found that the people there, the religious leaders, had turned his father's house into a place of commerce, into a marketplace, rather than a house of prayer, what did Jesus do? He started turning over tables and turning over benches and emptying the money containers of those who were making profit off of the place and the, of the house of God. And this is what Nehemiah does here. He throws Tobiah's furniture out. He says, this is not your home. This is God's home. And we are going to purify the worship. We're going to cleanse this place. We're going to bring back in the grain offerings and the frankincense and everything that is required for us to keep God's commands and to worship him with everything we've got. And this is our opportunity as well. We see again in, in verses uh, 10 through 14 a, a similar situation that's related. It says that the people did not follow through on their commitment that we saw just a couple of chapters ago to give their tithe, to contribute of their resources, to provide for the worship of God in the temple. But they stopped giving to the point that the Levites and the singers had to go and work their own fields just to be able to buy bread and to feed themselves. This is how negligent the people were when it came to the worship of God. And so Nehemiah in verse 11 asked this all-important question when he confronts the officials and says, Why is the house of God forsaken? 
Why are you chasing after other things, other priorities, and you're not prioritizing the worship of God? Why are you looking to your own needs and your own interests and following a thousand other pursuits, but not this one all-important pursuit, which is to worship our great God? We're talking about the God of heaven and earth. We're talking about the great I am. We're talking about the creator and sustainer of all things. We're talking about our deliverer, our peace, our banner, our shepherd, our shield, our rock, the one who is worthy of everything. This is the posture that we come in with. God, you're worthy. You're holy. You're perfect. And we are here for you, not the other way around. And so Nehemiah does everything in his power to set things right so that worship can be restored. We see in verse 11 that he reordered the temple responsibilities. In verse 12, he made way for the generous provisions from the people to return. In verse 13, it says that he appointed reliable treasurers who would contribute to worship rather than working shady side deals with the enemies of God. And this is our opportunity today. I, I wish I knew. I know where a lot of you are in your walk with God, but I, of course, don't know the intimate details of everyone's walk with God these days. But I know this, that we were made to worship him. I know this, that Paul, when he's talking about all of life and he's wrapping it up in Romans chapter 12, he says that we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, because what? This is our spiritual act of worship. And so worship, listen, worship, I think you know this, but if you don't know it, now you'll know that worship is not just a Sunday thing. I mean, Sundays are great. I love Sundays. Thank you, sweet Libra. I mean, like, and to pray and to come together and to hear from God's word, whoever's preaching, and just to, to, to lock in with God for whatever, 75, usually a little bit longer than 75 minutes. But worship is so much more than a one-time one thing on a one day of the week. We worship as we gather together again in groups through the week. We worship as we come together to pray as a church family. You can, you can join us this Wednesday morning or Friday morning for however long you have. I've been so encouraged by those gatherings. But it's not just, of course, it's not just a Redemption Hill thing. Yeah, we're family in Christ and we walk together and we seek to, to live together and serve together and all of these beautiful things. But... We're also individually followers of Jesus so that our worship is a resetting and a restoration of the daily worship of Jesus wherever we are. And so how's your worship? What's your worship look like these days? Are you prioritizing the worship of God? Is he first in your mind? Is he the first thought that you have in the morning? Or is he your last thought when you go to bed at night? Are you, are you finding space to, to pull away from all of the things that are going on? Not necessarily bad things, but things that might kind of pull you away and distract you from focus on God and singing your praise to him and offering your thanksgiving to him and, and releasing uh, just, just a, a focus that draws you closer to his heart. Let's build again by prioritizing worship, number one. But then number two, let's build again by keeping God's commands. 
Let's build again by keeping God's commands. Look at verses 15 through 31 with me. It goes on and Nehemiah says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. We find in this section that Nehemiah encounters another problem. 
The problem, of course, is related to the first problem because, as we said, the first two pursuits are so important and the first and greatest calling of our life is to worship God because if we get the worship of God wrong, if we fail to seek God daily with passion and joy, we can probably expect that we're going to move away from our love relationship with him and we're going to start doing things that he doesn't want us to do and we're going to fail to surrender daily to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and we're going to fail to keep his commands. And this is exactly what's going on. It says in the beginning of verse 15 that in those days the people started working their wine on the Sabbath. I don't know if you've ever made wine. I haven't. I mean, it kind of looks, I know some of you, especially who are super concerned about, you know, hygiene and, and you know, like cleanliness, um, you might kind of, you know, take a step back when you see people smashing grapes with their feet. You know, like hopefully they clean their feet first before they do that. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like, but that looks fun to me. You know, it's just like, I'm sure some kids would love to get in a wine press and just, you know, smash some grapes with their feet. Um, but, you know, this was going on on the Sabbath. And, and God had said, you don't, you're not to work on the Sabbath. You're to rest on the Sabbath and to worship me on the Sabbath. And so that's going on. But not only that, we learned that people were transporting their business goods, grain, wine, grapes, figs, and other items on the Sabbath. And they also allowed foreign people from the seaport city of Tyre to sell their delicious fish on the Sabbath. And this would have been a temptation. I mean, no doubt, to the, when the people of Tyre roll in, you know, they're bringing some good fish. It's like going up to maybe a gunkwit main to Perkins Cove, and it's like, are you going to pass up a lobster roll when you're in a gunkwit? I mean, I'm, I'm not. Like, if I, got, if I got enough change in my pocket, like, I'm buying a lobster roll when I'm in a gunkwit because they bring the best goods, and the people of Tyre were bringing the best fish into the city. But God says, it's not okay. You can do that six other days of the week, but you're not to do it on the Sabbath. In fact, we see the emphasis in verse 17 at the end where it says they were doing this and they were selling to the people of Judah, not to themselves. Okay, but okay, like it's Tyrenian, Tyrians, there we go. Tyrians selling to other Tyrians, that would be okay with God. But, but no, 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 the people of, they're selling to the people of, of Judah, to the people of, of God. And not only that, they're doing it in Jerusalem itself, it says. You see the exclamation point there emphatically. This is the place where it should not have been happening at all. The word Sabbath is so important to the Jewish people. We learn why it's so important. We, we learn why the fourth of the Ten Commandments says to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Why? Because God is a God who works. He's a God who created everything that we see. He created the world and everything in it. He created us. He created us for a purpose. But on the seventh day, God rested. God is a God who works. God is a God who also is a God of rest. And, and the, the word Sabbath actually means to stop. The Jews were to stop working on the Sabbath day so that they could rest and worship. Now, as uh, Pastor John, who uh, happened to write his uh, PhD dissertation on the Sabbath, would tell us that Jesus, being the Lord of the Sabbath, actually fulfills the Sabbath for us, and he becomes our rest. Listen, not just one day of the week, not just Saturday, or some people think the Christian Sabbath is now Sunday because we worship on Sundays, being the day that Jesus rises from the dead. Okay, but Jesus not only gives us rest on Saturday or Sunday, he gives us rest every day of the week. So Jesus truly is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is the true and greater Sabbath. And so I think, I think you can make an argument that 
we don't need to keep the Sabbath on Saturday. We don't need to keep the Sabbath on Sunday because Jesus has fulfilled it. And yet, I would also say that the, the wisdom principles of Scripture, even how God baked into creation his order of work, 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 rest. There is wisdom for us to take a Sabbath day, a day of rest, where we rest and we worship. And I think this is one of the things that perhaps we as ambitious Bostonians need to, I mean, is anybody tired here today? You just came in a little tired because, yeah, you're working really hard. And it's great to work hard. I try to work hard too. Every single week I try to work hard. But we need to work hard and then we need to rest. I take two days off every week. I'm not ashamed to tell anybody that. That would be Saturday and Monday. Saturday is a family day. I try to protect it, okay? So if you text me and you reach out to me on Saturday, I might not get back with you, not because I don't love you, because I love my family a lot more than I love you. Don't, don't be upset, all right? I'm sorry, but I just love my family more. So on Saturday, I'm spending time with them. And then on Monday, and also on Saturday, I'm doing what Marsha tells me to do around the house, okay? So like that's, and that's not, that's not always restful. That's not always restful. So, so Monday, Monday is really the day that I seek to observe the wisdom of Sabbath. And there are four things that I try to do every Monday that I rest in God. Let me give those to you. Number one, I stop. Again, the word Sabbath means to stop. We stop working and we, you know, don't check our email. We don't check our Slack. It's not a quick task, okay. But we actually stop so that we can, number two, rest. I try as best I can to sleep in on Sabbath days. I, if I need to, I try to take a nap because, like, physical rest is really important. And we need to replenish ourselves. You can go read the science on sleep. God made us to work hard, but God made us to rest well. And so take a nap. Get away. When the weather warms up, thank God it's warming up. Go to the beach and just do nothing but rest. But it's not just stopping and resting. It's also worshiping. Sabbath, observing a, a Sabbath principle is, is a day that you can draw near to God. This is clearly part of God's design for the Sabbath for the people of, of God and the people of Israel was to, for them to, to rest from their work so they could focus on their family and worshiping together as the people. And so what a great day because you've cleared your calendar and you have margin in your life and you haven't said yes to a thousand other things, but you've cleared out some time so that you can stop working, start resting, and also maximize worship. It may look like spending a little extra time with God through reading his word. It, it may uh, mean, you know, just, just get, turning on some praise music and going for a long walk, whatever that, that drawing near looks like. The Sabbath principle gives us an opportunity to worship God in a fresh and intentional and, yes, elongated way. And then finally, number four, enjoy. Stop, rest, worship, and enjoy. Did you know that God created a really good world? He created a really good world that he wants us to enjoy. We talked about that God is a God of joy last week, and we want people to hear our joy. Well, I can tell you this. If you start taking a day off, and it's not the day that you just do a thousand other things that you really don't have time for, and you have no margin in your week, and you're just going, 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 and you're tired, 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 my prediction is for you is that you're not going to probably be displaying loads of joy. 
but we stop and we rest and we not only enjoy God, but we enjoy God's good gifts. We enjoy time with the people we love, be that our family, be that our church family, be that the friends in our life that bring us life and we love to bring them life. It may mean uh, avocating or recreating. Avocation is doing something that, that you enjoy that is not necessarily your job. Maybe it's some kind of hobby or some kind of skill that's not your job. It's just life-giving to you, and you can avocate on your Sabbath. Or maybe it's recreating, just getting out and playing. And, you know, for me, maybe getting the basketball a little bit and shooting in the driveway or, you know, going for a hike in the fells or whatever it is. But then also... We, I mean, you're going to love this. You're going to be like, man, I got to start. I got to get the, the, the Sabbath day on my calendar because Pastor Tanner said to go enjoy some good food. Like we just, it's a day where we, we're creating space and we enjoy relationship and we enjoy the world that God's made and we even enjoy a good meal on the Sabbath day. If you want more on this, you can buy a copy of my friend's book, Adam Mabry. He wrote a book called The Art of Rest. It's a really helpful Nehemiah clearly valued the Sabbath, so much so that in verse 19 it says that he shut the gate so that no more commerce could come in. In verse 21 it said that he warned the merchants to stop selling outside the gates, and he even tells them that he will remove them by force if he has to. And then in verse 22 he commands the Levites to keep the Sabbath holy and to be set apart in devotion to their Lord. But then in verses 23 through 29, we find one more command that the people of Israel were failing to keep. Not only were they failing to keep the Sabbath, but they were also failing to keep their commitment to not intermarry with people from other backgrounds. And Pastor John addressed this two weeks ago, so I just want to recap some of the things that he shared and put my stamp of affirmation and confirmation on that, is that this is not an, a matter of ethnicity. All right, this is not about, hey, two people come from different ethnic backgrounds. No, it is about two people come from different worship priorities. This is the issue. And so, listen, if God moves you from the gifted season of singleness to the gifted season of marriage... What God cares about is that you are so locked in with him that you will prioritize finding someone else who is locked in with him. Doesn't matter where they're from. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter how much money they make. It matters that they worship God. And I love to go on record. This isn't the first time, but I'm going to go on record again and say, listen, Marsha and I pray that if God chooses to to move our kids from the gifted season of singleness. By the way, they're all single right now. And that makes Pastor Tanner really, really happy. All right, I'm really, I'm doing good, okay. Um, and, you know, but I'm watching Titus, you know. He's rolling into preschool. He's kind of making friends with all these young, you know, three-year-old girls. And I'm just like, son, you got to, you know, don't be so friendly. Man. So um, anyway, um, but, but if, he, if he moves them from the, the gift of singleness to the gift of marriage, let, let it be heard loud and clear. Pastor Tanner does not care about the color of their spouse's skin. He cares about the condition of their soul before God. Marry any ethnicity you want to, but marry someone who is fully committed to following Jesus all the days of their life so that you can, yes, run together and follow God together. But this is not what was happening in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah 
in verse 25, he begins to correct things. Now, if we, you know, if you were following along with me and you were reading carefully, I mean, this is some pretty serious stuff that it says in verse 25. It says that, and this is Nehemiah's testimony. He's, he's going on record too. And he's saying, hey, I confronted some of these people. And not only did I confront them, I cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now, maybe we need to be reminded that every example in Scripture is not a positive example to follow. All right? So, I mean, just, you know, like you see this, you're like, man, they made me mad. I'm going to go Nehemiah, and we're going to go outside, and we're going to take this to the parking lot because this is biblical. You know, God is saying, like, hey, you know, pull their hair out and shame them. All right. But this is, this is really not what's going on here. We, we think, you know, movies and fight scenes, and, but, but there's more going on than meets the eye. Alexander Nikolaishin says this. He says, this should not be seen as an angry outburst. Now, I'm not sure I completely agree with him. I think it was angry, um, hopefully righteous anger. But nonetheless, he says, this should not be seen as an angry outburst from Nehemiah. Inflicting bruises and plucking out hair was a culturally recognized way of dishonoring men. Nehemiah wanted to display visually that intermarrying with foreigners is an act with shameful consequences. And so Nehemiah calls their sin out, and he calls them back to a pure and true devotion to God in all of their ways. And as we read on and how he's purifying and even running the the son-in-law of Sanballat out from their, their midst, and he's trying to do everything he says in verse 30 to cleanse them from everything foreign and establish the, the duties in the, of the priest and the Levites, each in his work, what, what Nehemiah again is about is he's about calling the people back to build again in their relationship with God by keeping his commands. And there are two, at least two important lessons about our sin that I want you to not miss today. The first is this. Do not assume, do not assume that the sin you conquered yesterday will not resurface today or tomorrow. I hope you hear that. Do not assume that the sin you conquered yesterday will not return today or tomorrow. You see, at the end of chapter 10, if we go back, we will read these words out of verses 30 through 32. Listen, Listen to what the people say. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This is exactly what we covered in verses 23 through 29. What about verse 31? Oh, how about this? Uh, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. This is what we read about in verses 15 through 22. And now we get to verse 32, and it says, And we will also take on ourselves the obligation to give a yearly third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And this is exactly what we saw them failing to do in verses 10 through 14 of Nehemiah 13. All three of their declaration and commitments, they said, we will not, we will not, we will not. We find them doing those exact things in Nehemiah chapter 13, which reminds every single one of us. Maybe this is one of the gifts that we need to receive. Maybe God is going to protect you from some foolishness this week that you're going to be tempted to walk into. Because 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, if you think you are standing strong... Be careful not to fall. 
I want to read that again. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. I hope you know that we have an enemy who hates God and he hates the things of God and he hates us and he wants to trip us up and he wants to tempt us and he wants to knock us off course and we are not unaware of his schemes, the Apostle Paul says. So we need to have our eyes wide open. We need to have our armor of God on. We need to take up the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, gospel shoes, for our feet and we need to be prepared to snuff out the flaming darts that he is going to fire at us. You know what it's like to fall to temptation. There's not a person in the room who does not know what it's like to fall to temptation. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have the power. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to live the life. This is why we surrender daily to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to the things that God does not want us to be about, to say yes to everything that he wants us to be about. So let's not be fooled that we can't go back to these old sins. This is exactly what the people of God do in Nehemiah chapter 13. But then number two, we learn a second lesson. To not be okay. To not be okay with sin in our life but also the lives of the people that we care about. I know that if you're anything like me, you probably don't enjoy difficult conversations. So, so if you have a friend, maybe it's just you know, a friend you're close to, maybe it's someone in your community group, and, and you feel like you're seeing some things in your life, in their life that, that doesn't look like Jesus, and usually, usually you know, it's wise, like, we give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, maybe they had a bad day. But, but we start to see a recurring pattern of, of, of something that doesn't look like Jesus. We actually not only have the privilege, we have the responsibility to go to them and say, hey, I think I see something. Or actually, I do. I've seen it right here in front of me. I've seen something that is just not like Jesus. Can we talk about that? What's going on in your life? How can I help you? How can I pray for you? How can I come around you and, and, and support you so that we can walk this Christ life together? This is what Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 say when it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And then it says this in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is how we love one another. We seek to, because we care, we love one another enough to say your commitment to Christ matters to me and my commitment to Christ hopefully matters to you. And so we're going to keep locked in by moving together as we follow Jesus, to seek God daily with passion and joy, to surrender daily to leadership. You got that memorized yet? I hope you do. All right, so, so what do we see? What do we see? The book of Nehemiah calls us to a great work. The book of Nehemiah calls us to build again. We remember the words from chapter 2, verse 12, when Nehemiah says, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. God has put some things into our hearts as individuals, as a church family, that he wants us to be about his mission of loving people and leading people to the life of Christ. And it says in verse 18 that when they hear the invitation, the people respond and they say, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. 
And this is our prayer once again as a church family that we would say, hey, God, you have called us to a great work. And so we are all in on the mission. And we are going to say, God, we want to rise up and build not just one or two or a few of us, but all of us to say we're about this work together. Because, listen, God is doing a great work in our day. I hope you can open your eyes and see what God is doing in our city, in our church family. And he wants you in on it. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he promised this. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Which, by the way, I'd like to preach that for a minute. That means that the church is on the offensive, not the defensive. It means that we are barreling through the gates of hell and that hell will not be able to stop us as we bring heaven to earth. But we have to lock in. We have to be about the good work of following Jesus day by day serving and sharing and spending time with one another and sacrificing time and, and money with a lifestyle of generosity. And here's the, the mind-blowing part. The really mind-blowing part to me is that God has invited us into his great work. Our journey through Nehemiah extends this one and final invitation for us to partner with God in the great work of building his church. We get to partner. Listen, Rich, Rich, I see you right there. Rich is like, boy, like eyebrows raised. Like, like, Jen, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, Sam, like he's all of us. He, he's inviting all of us in to partner with him in the great work of building his church. You say, oh, Tanner, I don't, I don't know about that. You know, it's just like building, that's God's job. You know, Jesus said, I will build. So that's, that's for him. That's not for me. I mean, I'm going to hope it happens. I'm going to pray about it a little bit. But that's really, that's his job. That's not my job. And so, you know, you can think it's your job. <laughs> but in Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle Paul talks to the church in Ephesians, in Ephesus. And he says this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so what? So that it builds itself up in love. This is our call. This is our invitation. This is our responsibility to do the great work of partnering with God in his great work of building his church in Medford, in greater Boston, throughout the world. This is why we're all about Multiply March. We want to see the church of God grow in Dorchester. We want to see the church of God grow in Queens. We want to see the church of God grow in Southeast Asia. And we are willing to put our prayers in action. We are to, willing to put some money on the table to say, God, we want to see Jesus made famous in all of these places, including Medford in greater Boston. So what I want to do is this. I want to end our time just by bowing our heads. And maybe just maybe we should posture ourselves like we postured ourselves at the beginning of our time in God's word with open hands before him and say, God, whatever it is that you want, whatever it is that you're calling me to, Lord, that I want to be about the business of building again by prioritizing worship, by keeping your commands, 
by doing everything in my power to give myself to you wholly every single day. But not just do that in isolation, but to be like Nehemiah and to pull some other people into the journey because I also care about them. And so, God, I, I don't know what this is going to look like for every single person in the room. God, I don't even know what it's going to look like for me day by day. But, Lord, we're asking you to show us as we surrender ourselves before you, as we posture ourselves before you with an openness and a surrender to say, God, have your way in our lives. God, give us specific assignments. We've been praying about in Lent this week on Wednesday and Friday. God, put specific assignments into our hearts. God, put specific dreams into our hearts. Give us an eager excitement to engage in the mission. Let us be 220 confident when Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We can say that, Redemption Hill. We can say the God of heaven will make us prosper, not because we're great, but because God has promised his presence. He has sent us out in his authority. He has given us his strength. And so, God, we look forward. We look forward to like Nehemiah saying, I am engaged in a great work and I am not going to come down. I am not going to stop. I am not going to be, you know, persuaded in any other direction than that the path you are setting before me and this family. God, help us. God, unite us. God, help us to lock arms together and say we want to love you together. We want to follow you together. God, we need your help. We need your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.